Welcome back to Sidewalk Skyline Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Rogers. Eight years ago, when I started working with Mission Canada as an urban ministry consultant, one of the first uh, Mission Canada workers that I met was EJ Toupe uh, in downtown Toronto. At that time, EJ was a single man living in a basement apartment, and uh, I went and stayed at his place on an air, air mattress that, uh, that had a leak in it, and, uh, but had a good time uh, bonding with my friend EJ. Well, from that time until now, uh, I watched him fall in love and get married to Cheryl Walsh, and uh, now they have uh, a daughter, Gemma. Well, one thing I can say, uh, as I've watched uh, EJ's life grow over the last few years, is that EJ is uh, more mature, uh, more settled, uh, more focused, uh, and a big part of that has to do with two becoming one. And uh, Cheryl, his wife uh, is uh, also a capable uh, person in ministry uh, with a different set of skills than EJ has and a different personality than EJ has, but the blend uh, really proves that they are better together. At the Our City Conference at the end of May, EJ and Cheryl did a session together and uh, they talk uh, about relationship in ministry. So let's go to that episode right now. This is um, our workshop. We titled it Better Together. So EJ and I have been married um, for six years this September and actually we've never taught um, together. So this is our first time doing a workshop together. And for those of you in the room that know us, um, I've already had a couple people comment to say, well, it's not gonna be fun because you're like total opposites but yet balance each other out, and so I'm sure your presentation's going to be great. And they're like, you'll have all the notes, and he'll just, you know, fly off the seat and go with the flow. And I, I like, have notes <laughs> that she wrote. <laughs> that are like clearly labeled as who was speaking when, but it's great um, to have you all join us. Uh, we wanted to talk about the theme about Better Together, which is really about the value of partnerships. And so you'll hear more about my role and the work that I do and the ministry that I serve in and our value of partnerships on more of a national level. But then we're going to really scale it down and talk about the value of partnerships within urban ministry because obviously this is why we're all here today and our passion. Um, so what we wanted to do was actually just get a feel for who was in the room with us this morning. And so if you are a pastor of a local church or a leader in a local church, can you just raise your hand so we know... Um, like you two, you four. Um, so okay, so so a smaller amount. Maybe you two are questioning that at the back. <laughs> we're, we're not we're not staff, but, like, but you are. A, it's okay. I don't like okay. being called pastor either. <laughs> I can't wait for that to happen. <laughs> um, so then, if you maybe resonate with being a part of a mission agency or a mission organization, or do urban work, if you can raise your hands, that'd be okay. All right. Yep. And some of you are have both and we love that and so we're going to try to talk today about how this is impactful to local churches and also how it's impactful to mission agencies or or organizations so we're going to try to talk to both sides of it so that everybody walks away and feels like they have tangible action items that they can use within their own current setting currently i'm the urban missionary to downtown toronto for the Pentecostal assemblies of canada uh, and then usually that's followed by what do you do 
Good question. Uh, I was given a blank sheet of paper, and I was <laughs> given freedom to write down what I want to do. Uh, so it's like the reverse of getting a job. Most, most organizations, they get money, write a job description, and go hire somebody. Uh, with all Mission Canada workers, it's the opposite. We got the job, write the job description, and then go fundraise for it. So you're hoping that the idea you created is, is good. Um, but I, before I was offered that role, uh, I've been in the city since January 2007. Uh, I first started a church in the city. Uh, I was an associate youth, music, well, the slash. I just called it the slash. The only thing I didn't do was children's ministry because our senior pastor also went sabbatical a number of times, so I was the unofficial interim pastor then. Uh, then um, some of you I know from uh, Mission World, so I worked at Yonge Street Mission. Before that, I was a case manager in a youth shelter. Uh, before I got back to Toronto, I, that's when I started street ministry. So when I told that story of working in a shelter, that was 17 years ago. Uh, I was uh, I started a men's shelter at first, and I asked to be transferred to the youth shelter. Uh, uh, I mostly dealt with crystal meth addicts. Uh, 17 years ago. Crystal meth hadn't come to Toronto yet at that time. So when I first moved here, it was still crack and and, and cocaine that was pre uh, predominant, and then eventually that switched, and then now it's fentanyl. It's a mess. Um, I, I think after my seven and a half years of Church in the City, Young Street Mission, uh, I was doing those simultaneously. Uh, why I, I loved the opportunity with my current role now is I got to mesh both worlds. I'm a son of both mission and, and church world. Um, and for some reason, there's a bit of a, a wall there. And that's why even this conference is designed to, to try to break some of those walls. Uh, some of us in mission world, like I've known, we've known each other for a long time. Uh, and some people in the church world have also known for a long time. And for some reason, we don't work together, uh, but we should. So, I currently serve as the Executive Director of Converge Canada, which is a divisional ministry of Bible League Canada. And that is an international organization. We work in over 44 countries around the world, and we do that work through strategic partnerships. And so I serve there focusing on our Canadian division primarily. I've been there, oh gosh, just about eight years now. And my entire role, my entire job is centered around partnerships. And so, but I approach and work at a more of a national level, um, and EJ focuses more on a local level. But our heart is for, both of our hearts are for ministry in Canada and to see God's kingdom grow here, and for the lost um, to be saved. And so we're super passionate about that. Prior to this role, I served in a denomination with the Alliance Canada, and I primarily oversaw the leadership development of our credential workers there as well. I also have a heart for international work and international um, missions. I've traveled and served in over 30 countries now around the world, and part of my role with Bible League is to see God's movement um, all across our globe. And so it's just a huge privilege to be able to serve with that organization and I've learned a lot about what it means to have partnerships um, in order to advance the Kingdom of Canada. So I'm just going to lead into the next section and just talk a little bit about why, why partnerships. <clears throat> so the um, philosophy actually of Bible League Canada, and this has been the way they have worked for over 60 years, is to do ministry through partnerships. 
So we are not, Converge Canada and Bible League, we're not a sending agency. We don't send missionaries to other countries. We don't send them here in Canada. But what we want to do is work with organizations that are already on the ground and doing the work. So we find organizations both here in Canada and internationally who are working in various um, areas of programming, adult ministry, children's ministry, um, church planting, and the persecuted church. And that has been our model of ministry, as I said, for 60 years. We are one, um, really, the only organization we know of in Canada that work with that type of a philosophy. So we're not interested in sending white people into different countries to be the experts. God, God is on the move around the world. You know, um, I don't want to get too deep into this, but um, the shift of global Christianity has moved away from the north and the west and is now in the global south. And so we have a lot to learn from our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world. And so we want to we want to do that um, through those partnerships. And so the same is very relevant here in Canada. You know, Converge um, doesn't want to start ministry. I don't want to do the work that you are already doing or that you are already participating in. And one of our strategic partnerships is with the Tim Center, um, Tyndale Intercultural Ministry. So Brian is here today and um, they are an example of that. They've already been um, working to train new Canadian church planters and we said, well, great, let us help you do that even more. We're gonna infuse your organization with some money, with some prayer, with some strategic planning, with some scripture and help, let us help you do more of what you're already doing. And so that really is our philosophy behind partnerships. One of the standards we have is to be a is to be a gold standard partner. That's sort of our internal lingo, but that really means actually quite a bit of what Aaron was talking about this morning. Is I show up. It's all about being present with our um, our teams on the ground, being a part of what they are doing. Um, we want to become friends. We want to pray. For, we want to pray for our partners. We want to show up at their events, help them fundraise. Um, do all of the things and so that if we can help them grow then the kingdom of God is ultimately impacted here and so that's just a little bit um, about why we really value partnerships <clears throat> also something um, to say and I've been saying this for a long time uh, is I, I have an eye for what's happening nationally across Canada and the future of not-for-profits is through partnerships in time we're going to see um, not for religious-based not-for-profits be on the decline, and they already are, and the pandemic has certainly started that um, snowball effect. And so partnerships is really key to the survival of faith-based not-for-profits here in Canada to keep our work continuing. And so if you're not already looking at partnerships, then this is like where the workshop you need to be in because there are um, people out there that wanna help you do both within the, like both from the church side and the mission side, um, we want to help you do more of what of what you're already doing. So, partnerships for me kind of became an accidental discovery in ministry. Um, probably mostly premised by my time at Yelm Street Mission, actually. Um, so I was part of a drop-in team of 11 people, and there was 11 people just like me who were passionate about reaching street youth. Uh, we came from different denominational tribes. I'd say some of our theological arguments were fun. <laughs> so we would start our day with all sorts of theological arguments, but man, we were joined in mission. Once those doors opened, 
and, and the street youth would come, like that was that was our heart. In fact, our, our fights as a team were not over ourselves. We were fighting about which kid deserved grace. Those were our fights. Uh, and, and still to this day, a lot of us uh, remain family. If you've been part of the Evergreen crew, it's kind of, uh, uh, back then that was uh, where the Young Street Mission, that was their training ground for future leaders because it, uh, uh, it was kind of a free for all. But through that, that's where I learned where relationships empower you. We were stronger as a team together and I think we had greater capacity I forget sometimes even some of the crazy things we've done, like like literally gang wars on Young Street. Like we were in the middle of those things. And and yet I I don't carry a lot of I still I guess there is some secondary trauma that I've experienced, but considering how much I've experienced, I it's much lesser and I that's partially God's grace, but I also think it's being doing ministry in the context of community, right? And partnership is community thinking that if we both decide or if we decide that working together is better than working as an individual we might actually not only accomplish more but also shoulder the hardships better together um, so my current role allowed me to dream beyond just thinking of an organization because that's part of the the downside of being part of an organization you're you live with the tension of doing ministry and working for your self-existence, right? That's the tension. You're trying to exist and you're trying to do the ministry. If existing is your primary thing, you've lost the mission. That is not Christ-like. Jesus came to die, okay? Jesus came to die. That's the call. It's not about you being known, being popular, none of that stuff. In fact, I find my season now very funny because for years nobody knew what I was doing. For years, like I would be visited by the Lord's presence after mopping floors all day, cleaning puke off the stairs, helping street kids move. Like I sense God's presence far more in those times than I do now. And, and so my hope now actually is not so much to, to elevate myself, but to invite others to what that looks like. Uh, and that's the premise between this conference, so, so I, I, I know we're going to get to another part, but I just want to thank you for being here for two reasons. Uh, one, I know there's many things going on, but two, you're here, I'm hoping, because you care about the city. And there is no specific training for the city and urban things. People like rallying over other things, which is not a bad thing, we'll rally over justice, we'll rally over this, but specifically the city, for some reason, it's a lost art, even though, and I'll close with the statistics, because I get, um, being a, I'm a board member in a community center, and so I get, I get the, the reports from the SPAR monitor from the city. It's, it's the social planning uh, arm of the city, and literally they're disseminating the data from the census, from the census that was done to that last year, and on the last urban report that, that just came out two months ago, they indicated that 73.7% .7 of Canada's population live in urban centers. Majority of the population of Canada is in urban centers, 
And in ministry world, we have no specific training for urban things. Mind blown. <laughs> Anyways, uh, with that in mind, I also want to uh, say that this theme of better together, it's not a new thing. It's actually the theme for our, our wedding. <laughs> We're so lame. <laughs> People used to call us cute at that time. Yeah, yeah. Not lame. I, oh, I, I think it's cool. I think it's cool. You know, but so, so this is not just something we, we talk about. This is something we model, we live. Uh, even in, in, even in our, our, our lives, right? Like Cheryl is her own ministry and I'm my own ministry, and sometimes our ministries intersect. Uh, like I, uh, I'll close with this story, and then we'll we'll move to how we met together. Like perfect example, Cheryl sits in more meetings than I do, uh, but that means you lose touch of being with people. Uh, my role is partially, I, uh, Rick Tobias telling me years ago that I need to hold on to front lines as long as I can, because once it's gone, I just sit in meetings all day. Well, well, what he didn't know was I could be an urban missionary and sit in meetings and hang out with people. So my world allows me to still be with my marginalized friends, but in a more intimate way now. It's no longer a worker. There's no more worker and, and, and client relationship. We're, we're now friends uh, to the point where, I'll tell you how this plays out. I remember one of my guys, uh, I was in court, he was being released, so he was, he, there was a plea deal, it took months for work on that, so he pled guilty, so he was getting out of jail, he's been there for two years, and so I knew he needed a shower, so literally... He has his permission to tell this story. Yeah, yeah, he thinks, he it's, thinks it's great. He thinks it's funny. All the stories we share with our people, we always get permission. So anyways, so I called Cheryl saying, hey, uh, so-and-so is getting out of jail, just can you just get some stuff ready? He's going to take a shower, and like we're just going to get him some stuff, and he'll be on his way. I didn't think about it until I didn't know what things were like on her end, so why don't you tell them what it was like after I made that phone call? Well, we'd been married for, I think, only about four months at that time. So prior to EJ and I getting married, I obviously was single, living in downtown Hamilton, and my ministry world just look very different, which I think as single women, you don't have that, you know, um, street ministry, right? It just isn't as, um, isn't that common for single women to be ministering in those same ways. So I really had, like, had no idea what this meant. Um, that someone who just got out of jail is going to come to our house and have a shower. Like, what? <laughs> um, and you know, in those early years of our of our marriage, although I still say. Or you've not been married that long, but that first year of, of marriage, I really learned actually what it meant to have an have an open home and to have um, that level of, of hospitality. And I read a lot of books about what it meant to bring people around a table because I had to find my place in what would become our ministry, but was his ministry for like 12 12 years at that time, at 13, that time, 12 years, yeah. yeah, at that time, 12 years, and I had to find my role in that, so he gives me this call and says, this is what's going to happen, and I, and I was like, well, do I, do I put things away, do I, yeah, like, do, like, is he a criminal, I don't know, like, 
Well, yes, I don't know, and like, um, you know, and I and I didn't know anything about prison ministry at that time, but I've since learned like you don't ask those questions, right? About well, what were you in jail for? <laughs> you don't discuss those things. So I really had no idea why he was in jail, and so I was a little bit paranoid, and um, and I had never met him on the outside, but EJ knew him from long time. a long time. So before he was in jail all the time while he was in jail, and then we were still friends with this gentleman afterwards. Um, but of course, I had no relation. And so I was like, okay, well first, do I need to put anything away? What's about to happen? Should I cook food? Like, I don't know, is he hungry? Does he need a towel? Should I go buy soap? Like, does he have clothes? I honestly had no idea. And EJ's like, no, it's fine. He'll, we'll just come. Well, so he comes and lo and behold, you leave jail with things. And so he had things, and he came to our home, and he had a bag of um, clothes and all the things that he needed to No, I to drove I drove him from court to, to, to jail to pick up his things. That's right. Because this is what they do. They release you in, in at College Park. Right. And then I was like, all right. And you, somehow you got a trek from College Park to South Detention Center in its own to, yeah. to pick up your things with nothing on you. Yeah. You have, like, shoes with no shoelaces. Right, you have no money, so you gotta. So that's that's literally some people get a ticket right off of getting court just to get their stuff from jail because they didn't pay the fare from TTC. Yeah. yeah. Anyways, broken system. Yeah. A lot system of our ministry fail. is like moving people around because of these types of system failures. But he came into our home, and I tried to be like as cool as a cucumber. Um, but she's was, told this story in front of him, by the way. Yeah, he just like laughs. He laughs, um, but really anxious on the inside. But as soon as I, you know, as soon as I met him, made um, a pot of coffee, and he sat down at our table, and I just asked him for a story. Um, and ever since then, we've been hosting people in our home in that kind of capacity. Some people refer to that and have said over the years that we practice this version of radical hospitality. <clears throat> but it it is with the true belief that. Um, God brought us together, which is why the theme of our wedding was, was better together, because we could see that we were on these incredible trajectories as children of God and, um, and serving him in, in our callings. But by being married, we could, in fact, have a greater impact for ministry, both locally, like both here in Toronto, because there's things that EJ wasn't able to do as a single guy, and suddenly now being married... Meetings. <laughs> um, created more opportunity for him, you know, to have families into our home, to invite women into our home where I could minister to them in ways that he could never before. And then with my work with the national organization, um, he's been able to have more of a bigger viewpoint of what is happening within our whole country from region to region and how what we're doing can be replicated. And it's why we are pretty passionate about our city and do have a vision for it to go across other cities um, across Canada because there's a lot of work we need to do in each urban center to break down those silos that Aaron was talking about this morning. Um, and so a lot of our ministry together is a lot of what Aaron talked about, really trying to be present in our community. We live in Leslieville, have very much committed ourselves to that neighborhood. Um, Aaron is in Parkdale, so we like to say we're in Leslieville, and we're trying to do very similar things to what the Dale is doing. Um, She's actually our neighbor. They live up the street. Yeah. In East York. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, but that their presence is, is in Parkdale. Um, and so we just truly believe that um, 
Rayma had made a joke, so um, some of our family members are in the room this morning, and so Rayma had made a joke to almost say that like our marriage was that like a strategic partnership. And I was like, well, it kind of was because. Um, yes and no. Like, <laughs> We didn't know at the time what we could be capable of, but I we think knew, we're seeing We more knew of some it. of the same people, but never met each other. Each other, yeah. Uh, so literally my boss, for example, knows Cheryl before we met and knew me, clearly. He's the he only died. person actually that knew each of us separately. and then Yeah, so when the first time we saw us, I said, hey Cheryl, hey AJ, okay. wait. Wait <laughs> a second, what is, what is happening here? Um, but one of the things that we had, like that EJ had joked about earlier, um, was about finances. And something, you know, that, that is a true, I guess a really true it's reality. reality. Um, and because I work for a larger not-for-profit organization, I have a stable salary. And that salary is what helps us do what we do here. And so we talk about um, how living in downtown Toronto, it does take sacrifices. You know, we don't make, like, I still don't make a ton of money for us just to afford any type of lifestyle we want here. Um, but we sacrifice quite a few things to live in this neighborhood specifically, to be passionate about urban work in downtown, um, believing that God has called us there for a reason. So we've most recently committed to stay. Um, I can work anywhere, really. So, you know, throughout the pandemic, like, I think everybody did. You talk about, you know, are we going to stay here? Are we going to move? Like, what's happening with ministry? And we decided to stay for the next 10 years or so to help the city of Toronto rebuild and to find our footing again um, here in what ministry looks like, um, how we can better utilize our home and the spaces within our community for our ministry. Um, so just a little bit about what it means for us to have that greater impact for ministry by being together. Full disclosure, a lot of people in church culture are afraid of the city. They're afraid of the city. I, I, I lead urban ministry tours for the Bible College, Master's College Seminary. And I remember one time I took them to court and I joked, like, by the way, if you have any weapons, you can't bring it in. And then some kid was like, does a crowbar count? And I was like, why do you have a crowbar? <laughs> and you're, I don't know, we were walking around Toronto. We're like, it's like, so what were you going to do? Like, hit someone with a crowbar? He literally had it in the inside of his jacket because he thought he needed to protect himself. He'd never been to Toronto before. So, you know, we found some cardboard, hid it under the garbage. I'm like, you silly kid. But, but that's just reality. Uh, we There is a lot of rural theology out there. So even theologically, right, there is urban theology out there available for you. And for some of you, this might be the first time you're actually even hearing about it. But reading scriptures through an urban lens is a different reading. The plenary session last night, that was an urban reading of those, those three ministries, Jeremiah and, and uh, Daniel and Emma. That's an urban reading. Okay? And so part of, of what we're trying to do also with that, with the finances, is like we're hoping that we're also breaking barriers so that people recognize the urgency of what city ministry should look like. Like our neighborhood is 66,000 people. Less than 1% of our neighborhood go to church. When Jesus said, I'm gonna leave the 99 to go after the one, for us it's actually maybe half of a sheep, half of a sheep in a pen, and 99 and a half scattered. Literally to the point, if someone said, listen, I'm going to move in with my bad idea in your neighborhood do ministry, sure, come here with your bad idea. I literally don't care. 
You can literally set up shop. We'll take anybody. Yeah. You literally set up shop across the street from me. I do not care. Yeah. You want to come here? We'll take you. But the difference is there's a different reading of, I'll talk about urban, there's a different reading of a community when you actually physically live there. I'll give you an example. Some big ministries have ventured to, to I don't know, I guess, be uh, uh, just visit our neighborhood. Some of them you heard of. Hillsong, right? Some of the, uh, Steve Furtick, whatever his, what's his church called? Yeah, they did stuff in our neighborhood. Nobody in our neighborhood remembers. Literally, they rented one of the venues. I, I was walking with a bunch of urban uh, Bible college students. I saw, they, one of them saw a sign that Hillsong was rented opera house that they were in a service. And someone asked me, EJ, are you threatened? And I'm like, man, none of my neighbors are going to that place. I didn't even know. Yeah, I didn't even know. They lost their daughter's time. Yeah. So gathering Christians from all over the place, but like specific, my neighbors, 66,000 of them. That's my church. That's our church. If we magically reach 2% of our neighborhood, we have a church of how big? Any math majors in here? 66,000. 2%. That's 1,232. 1,232 people. That's 2%. If we magically pull that off, we still, we still have tens of thousands of people to reach. It's that bad. It's that bad in my neighborhood. And so we're not threatened by anyone who comes. In fact, we celebrate it. Come. But recognize, if you don't have um, intimate insights to this community, you're not going to make a transformational change. Because having good Sunday services is not transformational change. Okay? Jesus cares more than Sunday morning. You think God just wants, is an egotistical maniac that just wants to be praised one day a week? Really? Is that how small your theology is? Monday to Saturday should matter. That means the community should transform. And I don't mean like just crosses all over the place, people seeing worship. No. Bigger than that. You want a theology on it? Read Leviticus on the year of Jubilee. That's what it looks like. Um, I really want to say like why it matters is because the time is now. There has never been a better time I don't think um, in Canadian history of not-for-profits or the church or a better time in urban ministry to have strategic partnerships than it is now. Post-pandemic post and the future of ministry in Canada, um, it is, there is like, there's just such a time as this and a lot of national leaders, a lot of local leaders are sensing that right now. And so just to share a few statistics, um, I just pulled a couple that I think we should be paying attention to. Um, there's a lot of mosque planters. Yeah, so um, I just participated in a global conference actually over the last couple of weeks and um, now I'm just like super motivated and all ranty, have my own soapboxes as well. But um, Islam is the fastest growing religion in Canada um, and that has been the case since 2000, 2011. Um, so the newest census data on religion in Canada will be released this fall and I'm super eager um, to learn about it. And that something I've already made reference to is the shift of global Christianity is now in the global south. And so our global south brothers and sisters are sending missionaries and leaders to Canada. 
right? So we have, a, we're seeing such a shift with immigration and emigration that really this is what should compel us to start building partnerships if you're not already doing that. Um, that statistics and data matter. So I know that oftentimes there can be a posture of, you know, um, why should we study the statistics? Why should we study the data? A lot of people may not um, have a keen eye for that, just generally aren't interested in it, but it is very relevant and very important. If you as a community leader, whether you're leading a parachurch or inside a church, and if you are not studying your community data, learning who is around you, what other churches from all denominations, mainline and evangelical, and what mission agencies are within your community, you're doing a disservice to your mission. You need to be examining that, and there's lots of ways you can be doing that. And just, just to offer on that, so I, like, we love, so the one, one of the few shared things we like is data. I've been interpreting census data for years. Oh, yeah. Okay? I've been interpreting it for years because I care about my neighbors. You know, Jesus guy said, love your neighbor? <laughs> That's how it manifests for me because I want to know who our neighbors are. Uh, not everyone knows how to interpret that data. Right? But I'll give you an example of why it's relevant. Um, the last census data, not this one, not the one that's being released now, 2016, I made a few discoveries about how many people in poverty live in my neighborhood. So my neighborhood, our neighborhood is 41% over $100,000 earning households, and then 28% on welfare. That's crazy. We live right beside each other. And you see it. We live right beside a safety injection site, right amongst million dollar homes. I discovered also within that data that over 50% of the, the family makeup of our neighborhood are couples working in working age, like us. Over 50% of our neighbors. And then over 70% of them have one or two kids around the age of our child. We accidentally moved into the neighborhood where we are literally the atypical family unit in Leslieville. So that's how the spirit works. The Lord, well, actually maybe through Cheryl, because she was the one who prophetically said, live in Leslieville. I, I did say that. Yeah. Um, I was very adamant that we were going to live in Leslieville, not in Riverside. I live in Riverdale. Sorry. Um, and, you know, for those of you who live here, Toronto is very neighborhood-centric, right? And so you cross those boundary lines and suddenly you live in an entirely different world, it can seem at times. So neighborhood boundaries and neighborhoods are really important yeah. in Toronto ministry. But so hold what he was just saying, because we're going to share stories, like practical stories of what we did with that information and how we are using that right now. So let's just stay on this slide. And so something else EJ's already spoken to, but paying attention to population data is shifts. also shifts. really important and shifts um, and what is happening. So 83.9% of all of Canada's popula population lives in a metropolitan area. So we need to have more strategy around urban work, urban church planting, um, and urban mission organizations. And so what are we doing with that information? And we really feel like partnerships is a way to help, um, to help that cause, to help advance the church in urban city centers. And then paying attention to just our population growth. 5.2% of our population growth in Canada between 2016 and 2021. That's exceptionally fast. 
Um, so more people are coming to Canada. And majority from immigration. Majority is from immigration, and so we like you need to be paying attention to that. Does anyone know what the immigration? I just feel like I can't beat that drum anymore. Um, anyone want to guess what our immigration targets are for for the country of Canada per year? Three hundred fifty thousand to four hundred thousand per year. Per year. Three hundred fifty thousand to four hundred. That's the immigration target. Yeah. That's how big the lane is. Three hundred fifty thousand yeah. to four hundred. Not to 000. say that that's going to happen, but that is the lane. Um, so it's interesting. Yeah, it's more than sixty-six. Yeah. Think about think about that. Think about that. Yeah. And, also, as another note, does anyone know why Islam is the fastest growing uh, religion in Canada right now? That's right. Um, because of babies. And babies. So, Muslim families in Muslim tradition, they have more babies than Anglo-white Canadians do. And so, generationally, it will grow faster. That's just... So, by, 20, by 2050, the UK and Canada is predicted that Islam will be the number one religion in both of our countries. Um, and that's not that far away. So it is why, um, again, like all of what we're talking about is why it matters to us about building partnerships. Um, because this is, like we just truly believe is the, is the answer. Um, we're just really passionate about it. So we can go on. Ida's gonna talk next about um, space. understanding space and what does it look like to be present. Uh, first, I want to share with you what the city's silent perspective is on space uh, and, tr and religious uh, institutions. So back in, I, th I think now 2014, I, I forget, but the city has now uh, has a moratorium on giving permits for, for new uh, places of worship. Okay, So the city will, not, will no longer give new permits. So no matter how hard you pray, <laughs> no matter how much money you have and you bought the building, it's not going to happen. There's only one workaround. Uh, you get the community to rally behind you and that city councilor. That means you need to live there and you need to do the work for at least a decade in order to get that passed, in order to get an exception passed to city council. Okay? I'm not going to say who made those mistakes, who did not know that, but there have been churches who have done that. And it's also why... Uh, mosque planting is a real deal. They love buying old churches. Now, from a city's perspective, the reason why they gave this moratorium is not because they're against Christians, necessarily. It's more a pragmatic thing. Churches don't pay taxes. Churches don't pay taxes, and the city space is on a premium. And most churches only use their space on Sunday mornings or Sunday afternoons. And if we actually were to do an audit on how much church space is being used, let's say on a work day, nine to, let's say just nine to, nine to 9 p.m., 12 hours, I can guesstimate right now that's only 10% of use. Well, if that. yeah. If that. And if you get 10, you're like, yeah, you're rocking your programs. Yeah. <laughs> and, and nationally, churches of all kinds um, actually have the largest square footage owned, our yeah. churches. So from a, like a land. Yes, from a <laughs> yeah. city official perspective, you think about it. This is like prime urban land not being used. Not being used. So why would they want more of this? Why would they want more of this? 
Now that, that narrative changes if your church building is actually engaged in community, right? Beyond Sunday morning, beyond Saturday. And, and we can talk about all sorts of models, but I just want you to think about that. But there are actually models on how spaces can be utilized. I'll just give you one example. One of my favorite guys in the PAOC, he doesn't get heralded a lot, but I love him, is Pastor Howard Courtney. Small town of Innisfil, 5,000 people. This guy has a church of over 500 people. This guy hits decimal, decimal points, okay? Decimal points. There is no community center in Innisfil. His church is the community center in Innisfil. A food bank runs out of there. He does a lot of social, social work. And all the public ceremonies that happen in that town happens in his church. Okay, so graduations, ceremonies, like anything. He is the biggest gathering place in that town. If your church functioned like that in the community, that bylaws like that one, the moratorium on, on like no religious uh, places of worship will never happen because they see now churches as an asset, as an asset. Okay, yeah, and that's just primarily because the thought is still driven by church equals building, right? So Aaron talked a lot this morning, which <clears throat> I was so encouraged by, about how their church has no walls. Um, and I thought that they had such great examples of what it means to be present. What does it mean to be visible and present in your community so that you are being the church and using what you have strategically? So for us, we do have a bit of a... Uh, gaggle of people that gather together for worship um, and prayer every month. And so we are not after starting a church inside of a church building. We rent our community space, our library space, um, pretty much anywhere um, in our community that has- Space use is not an issue. Like that actually has like a room. We will use that to gather our people together. Like literally, I mean, we're getting to the point I mean, pandemic kind of slowed us down, but, yeah. but people have stayed com connected to us. But let's say if we were to say we're going to have a church gathering we're li in our home, that's where we used to do it, we have to pray not everyone shows yeah, up. Yeah, like we're outgrowing our, our living room now. But literally, then people ask us, oh, if you need to go outside your living room, where would you do it? Like, literally, we have a, a like, plethora. Yeah. But space, let me just give them one, one space. So I, I'm on the board of directors of the Ralph Florida Community Center. Whenever we have big gatherings, that's where we rent space. Literally right on Queen Street, okay? It's literally right on Queen Street. It's prime urban space. The last time we rented there was Christmas of 2019, before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we had like 38 people there. We have no website, okay? We have no website. It's not like, oh, upper room. Like, no, no website. You, you become part of us because we know you. Someone invited you. We rented that space for four hours, and that includes projector, sound system, oh, yeah. tables, custodian, chairs, tables, chairs. We paid $54. Yeah. Because city-run spaces have categories for not-for-profits and for churches. So we pay and a community much- or, and, they, yeah, so, community, they see us as a community, community organization. So we pay a much cheaper rate because we're a community organization. And so for us, it's a value to be- And they offered us that before I even joined the board. Oh yeah, yeah. So this yeah, isn't. That's not even a, this isn't a. Oh, EJ's on the board. Just, like literally, my first board meeting I attended 
we ratified adding churches specifically yeah. to have a discount. <laughs> yeah. I was like, yeah, 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 I'm for that, yes. <laughs> Did I raise my hand fast enough? Oh, okay, yes. Yeah, but because we consistently run space at the same spot, they begin to know us. And that is how EJ became aware that they had positions available on the board, was because we continue to use the same community center over and over again. And then you build relationships with the people inside, and then the custodian actually joined us for that, for that service. Oh yeah, that's right. Dude. Yeah, um, and um, so yeah, so about being um, visible and present in your community is how you begin to build those partnerships. And so see who has space around you and begin to use them. We honestly don't understand why churches um, say to us the people aren't coming to us and then we immediately say well have you gone to where they are and if the answer is no then that's your that's you're that's your doing problem. something wrong right and so in order to get people to be part of your communities you need to show up where they're at and so actually we also have an MP an MPP's office right across the street our from MP. our house right um, beside the weed shop Giggles. yeah um, and every other door is graffitied except for that one um, and so we make a point of stopping in and saying hello and just being present. Um, I've had coffee with her. Yeah, and you know, and teaching Gemma how to say hello to people, and all of those types of things. It's about being outside of your doors, like Erin was talking about this morning. We want to talk a little bit about the tools and strategies, and what do mission partnerships actually look like, and how to go about doing that. So EJ is going to talk about the tools and strategies, and I'll touch on the mission partnerships a bit. Yeah, I've been very blessed that over a decade ago. Uh, I, I was studying at Fuller and I was introduced to this thing called Christian Community Development. So it was actually started by John Perkins Jr. Uh, a black man who was a former slave, I'm like, oh, right on. And the Lord not only did a work in his heart, but wanted to transform the community. And so uh, they're focused around the, the, the three R's, so relocation, to live in the neighborhood, reconciliation, which means uh, reconcile to God and to your neighbors, to yourself. And the, the last one is why most people are afraid of it, is redistribution. Uh, so realizing that uh, people earning money is an issue. And that creating jobs might actually be a meaningful ministry. Can you imagine if people saying, you know what? I, 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 got, I got paid in Jesus' name. <laughs> I, get, I got paid properly. Well, that's testimony. Anyways. Um, Part of what we learned there is, is like a mixture of both looking at statistics, but also learning how to read the neighborhood, how to look at a house. And because people say things about themselves based on what they put on their windows, based on, we all do it, right? We put stuff on our walls and then, but that says something about who you are. And you can literally walk around and realize what kind of neighbors you, you have and then contextualize how can I reach them how can I contextualize Jesus so that they understand? Because there's that's a bit of disconnect. Like literally down the street on Young and Dundas, there's a bunch of street preachers using words that nobody uses. When was the last time you hung out with your friends and said the word sin? It's like, oh, I was really sinning hard this week. <laughs> like, no one talks like that. But there's a language barrier, right? And unless you on and here's the thing: that incarnation that Jesus did to become flesh. That's not just a theological idea. That's also a strategy. God's like, you know what? They're not getting it. I need to walk alongside, be heard, be in the flesh. 
And so that's part of what asset mapping is. Who's here and how can I manifest being a presence of Christ amongst my neighbors? Because it doesn't matter how loud you are if they can't hear you. It doesn't matter how loud you are if they can't understand what you're saying. You need to understand how people process information. We focus so much on the person speaking as opposed to focusing on the person who's hearing. How can they hear me? And so community exegesis is part of partially listening to our neighbors. What are our neighbors saying about themselves? And then I can actually then speak about Christ in a meaningful way to them. And this is what, this is what Apostle Paul was doing at Mars Hill when he said, you know, uh, uh, if you think about it, uh, I'll, I'll just give me a few minutes. A lot, when we talk about evangelism, what's the typical starting point when we talk about evangelism? What's the word? I used it earlier. Sin. Is that where the scriptures begin, the conversation? No. When does sin show up? Genesis what? Three? Genesis three. Where does the Bible start? Genesis three? No, of course. Where does, where does the Bible start? Genesis one. And there, what did God say about everything he created? Good. It was good. Rabbi Paul <laughs> was trained in the same way. So the conversation did not start with, at Mars Hill with sin. What did he say? Men of Athens, I see that you are spiritual. He was affirming their God-imbued desire to worship. Genesis 1, everything was good. And then shifted to the conversation of what was missing. I see you're spiritual. You put up all these gods, but you have this one that's called the unknown God. Let me reveal this one to you. That's a Genesis 3 construct. That pattern should still exist in how we speak about Christ and how we speak about evangelism. That it's actually an aberration to begin the conversation with sin and not even talk about God's original intent. This is the East and Western theological divide. It has been a Western European preference to begin the conversation on sin. And if you actually listen to our Eastern Orthodox brothers and sisters, that's not where they begin the conversation. Because God's original intention was good. Now imagine now, if let's say, let's apply this to street preaching. You shift. Instead of saying, oh, you sinners, you begin actually, everybody, I am here to declare that God made you good. I am here to proclaim that God built you to be good. Would people still yell, dismiss you? Does that sound like good news? <laughs> but part of what part of what he's talking about is that for us as like urban workers, um, we were able to listen and do some of these exercises and asset mapping and did an exegesis on our community. And over the number of years, we just listened to what people needed, what they wanted, and tried our best to be present for that, so that we could develop some mission partnerships that then would help to support them. And so what some of that can look like at times 
is as simple as us just getting to know the people who answer the phone at the community center so that when we want to get space, we kind of get it because they know who we are. Her name is Rose. She's Her awesome. name's Rose, yeah. Um, and it can also look like something a little bit more formal. So the church, the Danforth Community Church, is in a mission partnership with a food bank. Um, and there isn't you know, a formal MOU in place and they use the space because that is an incredible building and so the so that church has their building to offer and they allow community groups to come inside um, and use their space. Now we are helping that church try to figure out how to do that better, but that would be an example of a much more strategic, intentional partnership where there's more formal paperwork in place. That is the work that I do, is to create intentional partnerships with lots of paperwork in place, um, but for the long haul. And that's also what we wanted to emphasize as well, is that strategic partnerships um, shouldn't time. be short term. They take time. They take time and they should be for the long term. We want to help transform communities, transform Canada, and you can't do that in one year. You have to do that for years together and help to build and advance that work. And so if Danforth Community Church isn't helping that food bank to grow and to do better at what they're doing, then they're doing a disservice to that mission partnership. Sometimes people don't realize that someone else opened the door for you and you just walked in with no long-term plan. There's, there's a senior's home down the street from us. I called them years ago about like, hey, would you be open to having like uh, a faith group to like do things? She said, play yes, music. play music. And she's like, that would be great. So my thought was, you know what? I said to her, let's revisit this when I can actually do something that's maintained and can be sustainable and like long-term. And so, and then I ported it because we have other work to do. And then all of a sudden I find out, I'm not gonna say who, another ministry group went in there to do the thing. They didn't realize that my relationship building opened the door why they got a yes. Their, their church services happen in Mississauga. And they're in my hood. And I was livid because I'm like, because they're putting it on Instagram, doing all the photo op, loving the city. And I'm like, are you going to drive those seniors to your church services? Are you going to do that? Are you going to continually come here to build relationships and get to know them? And I'm telling you right now, they stopped. They didn't do any of that. So they came in, got their Instagram posts, oh, we love the city. No, you didn't. Yeah. <laughs> Can't tell we're not a big fan of large-scale churches saying that they have churches in Toronto, but are actually based in Oakville <laughs> or Mississauga. That's a, a or trend Hamilton. right now that seems to be happening. Remember um, when so Brian then they Houston pop was up like, in downtown, Hello, Toronto. No. do some pop-up work we like to say, and then they leave. <laughs> we don't like that. So let's talk about what has been successful. Yeah, this is good stuff. For, so after we'd spent some time hearing Happy from thoughts. our community members, and that, and that happens because we choose to intentionally be a part of our community. So EJ serves on, a, on the board for this community center. I serve on a board for the Child Parent Center in our community. Neither of these are Christian-based, so it also gets us at, you know, part of non-Christians. Um, and you know, when I show up at the kids' community centers, and we just live our life in the community, and so throughout the pandemic, obviously parents were tired, and we heard that over and over and over from them. So and we were tired. We were also tired, and so because of some. But we have Jesus. That EJ knows. <laughs> We were able to partner with the Ralph Thornton Center and the Child Care Center, Child Parent Center, and bring a workshop to parents. Um, so it was called Bring Them Closer. She's a Mission Canada worker. Not anymore. Not anymore. Used to be. Um, 
and she has her own story and she actually runs a workshop that is not faith-based which we really appreciate because in order for us to do what we need to do we need to actually have connections with non-christians who can bring good quality content right and so we didn't want to promote a faith-based seminar we wanted to promote a seminar that would actually help our neighbors currently with well, where they're at plus our, our value is connect uh, meaningful connections with non with unchurched people right like it, it would be an aberration for us if we invested more time with church people than with engaging unchurched people. Right. It's yeah. We would rather do something that seems weird to church people, but have super high engagement with unchurched people. Yeah. That's a value. So she is a church person, but speaks often to non-Christian audiences. So her seminar was perfect. We had 28 parents come to a Zoom Presentation. 35 per, uh, registered. It was the yeah. highest registration. Stuff. And 28, primarily moms, came um, to hear about strategies in how to help their kids, basically. Um, and so for us, that was just a really great example of a strategic partnership that we were able to have. And then... Can I, can I add to that, though? Before sure. we, I want you to think about this. 28 unchurched families. I think you're down. I know I do because to us it's like our life. But it's twenty. Think about it. If you pulled off a church event that reached that many unchurched people, what would you do? Twenty-eight. Honestly, um, the stories they shared was so intimate. They were just so hungry for someone to love, and then that literally when we hung up, or so or so hungry to hear somebody else say you're not alone. Yeah. And some people were there with their wine glasses, like crying, literally crying, yeah. as they're sharing this. And honestly, after we hung up, we were in tears, like, I think we just blessed our neighbors. And get this, 20 unchurched families, all our neighbors, all our neighbors. And then because we keep showing up at the community things, we keep seeing these, we just keep seeing them. We keep meeting people. Right? Oh, you're EJ. Oh, yeah. you're Cheryl. Oh, you're... That's yeah, general. You hosted that workshop that we attended. Like, thank you for like, thank you for doing that. Um, and so, yeah, I do kind of downplay it because it seems like a part of our regular lives, but it is important. Um, well, the the part with that partnership too is think about the amount of relational equity we needed to get yeses, right? We needed to get an executive director of the community center to say yes. We need to get the executive director of the the parent child center to say yes. They say yes to, yes to us with no hesitation. So the part that Cheryl doesn't also talk about, we took years of relation, relationship building in order to do that. We weren't just a, oh, we want to love in the city, have this one event. Like, no, there was an intentionality there, a meaningful connection, and it's not over. It's not over. We continue to build those relationships. So it's hard for, because we say yes to our community, in return, our community says yes to us. Think about that. So even building relational equity, nobody, I rarely hear that language even in church. People assume that somehow, oh, we're just saying the Jesus thing, people will magically show up. Well, big news, folks, it's not happening. <laughs> and it's not because Jesus is the problem. Is Jesus the problem? No, Jesus is not the problem. Our methods need to die. Our methods need to die. The moment we let go of hero ball, the moment we let go of wanting the big thing and actually think of momentum, that's how we're doing. 
So we've been investing in our neighborhood now five years. Five years. We are building momentum. So when you think about church, I should have put a circle on this. People think about church gathering, uh, church gathering and leaders, and then uh, and then pe people who sometimes struggle in your church, and then build community. Right? That's the model. We. That's uh, uh, Rick Warren. <laughs> Bill Hybel. Bill this is all their model they're talking about. I actually argue that that is unbiblical. We build community first. That's what you do first. Why is that the last thing you do? That should be the first thing you do. Church planting should not be centered around the Sunday gathering. That's the imagination also. We're going to plant a church. That means we're going to focus on the Sunday morning. Well, folks, we invest, and in, 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 uh, our, our, our denominational official can attest to this. You have your first church planting service, and it's like packed with all sorts of visitors. How you really know how many people are part of that church plant is week two and week three. And that's when you know how many people from that neighborhood, from that community are actually part of that. But the reality is, if you do it the other way, you begin with community engagement. You begin with being part of the ecosystem. You begin with building relational relationships, and then you end with a church gathering as your last point. With, can I just ask facetiously, do you think that church will survive? Much better, right? That church will survive. Why? Because the community already knows you. There is already investment in equity. People are not wondering, oh, what's that weird church? I'm telling you right now, having a cool church name and having a cool worship band and a good preacher is no longer the best strategy for church planting in downtown Toronto. Or anywhere in Canada. Or anywhere. Especially in the city. Are you telling me that your band is playing the, better than what's, who's playing at Massey Hall? Are you telling me that, that preacher is better than anyone speaking at Mars on uh, all the TED Talks that happen in the city? No way. We have one calling card as a church, the spirit of the living God. The spirit of the living God. And if we actually figure out how to, well, be Pentecostal, move along with the rhythms of the spirit. Imagine if you walk, speak, Lord, tell me where I need to go. Tell me who, who needs to be led. People think I'm crazy. I lead street walks and literally, where are we going? I don't know. What are we doing? I don't know. And then it's like, I literally say, we'll see where the Spirit leads. And every time, God does not let me down. Not because I'm smart, but I'm just dumb enough to actually believe that if God says it and I obey, God will bless it. God will bless it. Okay, I just want to tell the last story. That's the last story. You tell your last um, story. <laughs> it's important to me. It is um, important. Also, I'm not sure if you figured this out yet. We like live like missionaries, so we also say a lot. Um, if you are ever around international missionaries or Canadian missionaries, we all kind of think the same. And so, uh, what we really talk about is what missionaries have that mindset, right? Which is just different than often the Western church culture mindset. Um, but one of the things too that we wanted to highlight was just the the importance about talking about what you do. So for us, we go to the same doctor's office, the same dentist, the same chiropractor, and they're all in our community and all in our neighborhood so that we can share the stories about what is happening. And so one day I was with my um, 
my acupuncturist, and she knows us and has known us for a long time now. She was my chiropractor. Yeah, and then she became mine. Um, and so she'll, you know, she'll often say, oh, how's like the work going? And so this past winter, I was sharing with her about the challenges throughout the pandemic and supplying our homeless friends with socks. Um, everybody knows, right, in the dead of winter, what we need and every mission agency needs are socks, socks. gloves, hats, those types of things. Um, and so I was just sharing, her, sharing with her the stories because the pandemic really highlighted the needs for individuals in the margins. And I kind of went on this rant about when, um, you know, when the government had shut down stores to in-person shopping, but the big box stores were remained open, um, but you could sometimes only shop online. Well, people in the margins can't shop online, right? That's not even possible. So we were doing some online shopping for some of our friends. I was just like sharing an angst to her that this is just so frustrating because our friends just can't walk into a store and get what they need. And so she says, well, we could get you socks. So they, as a clinic, did a sock drive for us. And I shared... Without asking. Yeah, without we asking. We didn't ask, we just shared. She just said, I hear your need, and we can help you with that. They have quite a number of clients. They're a very popular um, clinic in our neighborhood, and thousands of people walk through their doors every week. And she said, let me get our social media manager on this. She'll connect with you. You give them, you give her the information, and we'll start to... To, to talk about it and none of them are Christians there and they wrote a story about the needs of the homeless in our city who need socks in such a moving and compassionate way that like I was compelled to give socks um, and so they yeah they collected socks over the course of a month we went and picked them up and like that is just to us was so simple because all I was doing was just sharing my like my heart with her, not even like asking for a soft drive, but I was just sharing how frustrated we are and she saw a gap and could step into that. And so keep talking about what you're doing in your own urban context, in your own churches, to people around you because they want to be a part of good work. They don't care all the time that you're a church or you're mm -hmm. Christians. Mm -hmm. They wanna be doing good things too. And they are good people. And so talk about that and and give them the opportunity to say, let us help you with that. It's also a door of evangelism. Somehow yeah. we, mm -hmm. we kind of made evangelism narrow, that it's just proclamation as a primary thing, when really how, inviting unchurched people to serve is also, the, yo, that's spiritual, man. Mm -hmm. That's spiritual. Um, you, you mean to tell me that, that uh, they're not affected by serving people in need. Yeah. Jesus said, whatever you did to the least of these, I am among them. Right? So that means as they serve, they are seeing the face of Christ. Mm -hmm. Sound like sound like a good sermon to you? Thank you, Cheryl and EJ, for sharing those insights. You know, uh, the conference held at Stone Church in downtown Toronto uh, it is a church that is filled with Pentecostal history. One of the things that I discovered uh, in the next session uh, was that uh, the Ethiopian Pentecostals uh, that we have in Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada, there's a handful of congregations uh, scattered across the country, that uh, it began with uh, two Ethiopian ladies praying together at Stone Church and uh, the, the first uh, Ethiopian Pentecostal church 
uh, evolved in that place and spread from there. So uh, the guest on our next episode, uh, Heskus uh, Mandefro, um, is, uh, is a young man in ministry at a, a large Ethiopian church uh, with the uh, Missionary Alliance. And uh, so one of the things that he discovered in uh, growing up in a cultural church, cultural language church, uh, was that as a person in ministry, um, he had to constantly be involved in the process of cultural translation, uh, helping uh, a diversity of people within the same language group uh, understand uh, the, the gospel, understand uh, life uh, as a Christian, uh, from many perspectives. And uh, the old people saw it one way, the young people saw it another, and others saw it other ways. And uh, so the next session uh, dives deep into this whole idea of cultural translation in ethnic churches. Come on back and listen, will you? We launch our episodes on the 1st and the 15th of every month. Until the next episode, I'm your host, Kevin Rogers, and you've been listening to Sidewalk Skyline Podcast.